This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. Our guest is Dr. Susan Shumsky. How are you doing, Susan? I'm doing great, Bob. I'm so glad to be here today. Yes, I must say, and this is quite a story in itself, Susan Shumsky has actually lobbied to be on the Historian's uh, podcast, and we finally uh, made an agreement to to do it. Uh, she is author of a number of books, but what we're going to talk with her about is her uh, book, Maharishi and Me, Seeking Enlightenment with the Beatles Guru. Kind of a different topic for the Historian's podcast, Maharishi and Me, uh, Seeking Enlightenment with the Beatles Guru. A pioneer in the self-development field, Susan Shumsky has written 14 books, and for 22 years she lived in the ashram of the famous guru from India, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, spiritual advisor to superstars, including the Beatles, and a man who was credited uh, with uh, starting uh, the modern transcendental meditation movement. How did you end up in India with the Maharishi, and, and when, when did you go there? Uh, what year, and, and how old were you? I was 21 years old, and it was 1970. And how I ended up there was, I was a hippie. It was the 60s. I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area. At that time, uh, those of us who were flower children, which is what I was, Mm -hmm. we were embracing this counterculture lifestyle. And part of that counterculture lifestyle had to do with seeking nirvana, looking for higher states of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And I was reading books like Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. I was reading Buddhist scriptures. I was reading The Way of Zen by Alan Watts and other books by Alan Watts. And in Alan Watts' books, he said that in order to meditate, you have to find a quote-unquote meditation guide. Well, in 1966 in Berkeley, California, you didn't exactly go to the Yellow Pages and look up meditation guide or anything remotely similar. Mm -hmm. But a friend um, asked me, have you ever tried to meditate yourself? And I said, well, okay, I'll give it a shot. So I lay down on my bed. That's how clueless I was. I didn't even know that you're supposed to sit up when you meditate. I lay on my bed and I sort of prayed for or asked for a meditation. And immediately I was propelled into an ecstatic state. I could feel this cord or rush of energy rushing from the tips of my toes all the way to the top of my head. And I felt like I was plugged into a cosmic electric socket, but in the most ecstatic way. And I figured, well, I guess this is meditation. Little did I know that I had my first meditation experience and also a kundalini awakening at the same time. Kundalini being a subtle energy that's supposedly very hard to attain Mm -hmm. and it wasn't long after that a friend took me to the transcendental meditation center where i saw the picture of the guru hanging on the wall and i immediately was entranced by him and his energy just from the picture like there was energy just beaming from his eyes And I knew immediately, this is where I'm going to learn real meditation. And that's what I was seeking. 
Hmm. So you sought him out. What was it in India? I mean, because I believe he lived in several places during his lifetime. He did, yes. And well, first I learned transcendental meditation. I had to wait nine months before I could even learn it. But finally, a teacher came to the Berkeley TM Center, and so it was during the summer of love, 1967, in August, that I learned TM, and then. I had such amazing experiences immediately. It transformed my life in very powerful ways. I mean, I didn't mention that I had been trying to experience these higher states of consciousness through drugs, through LSD specifically, which is what uh, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, who had written the book The Psychedelic Experience, Mm -hmm. they were telling us to turn on, tune in, and drop out. And they were... They were trying to help us to have experiences of higher consciousness at that time. And that didn't work out too well for me. As a matter of fact, I had what uh, what I would call a mental breakdown. And so when I learned at TM, immediately I was cured from the, these hallucinations and crazy things that were going on in my life. Uh, because when I took LSD, I actually never came down i was uh, continued to be on the drug so to speak even though the drug had worn off a long time before uh for many months and so i really needed a cure and meditation seemed to be the cure Hmm. so i was very impressed with meditation and i started immediately to apply to teacher training courses from 1967 1968 I applied to several teacher training courses that Maharishi was teaching in India, uh, but they kept telling me I was too young. You had to be like, you know, 24, 25 years old, and you had to have already been a graduate from college. But finally, I was accepted on the course in 1970, and I stayed there for six months with Maharishi in Rishikesh, India. Mm -hmm. Now, by the time you get there, I mean, he's already... uh well-known, dare I say, like world-famous. And if possible, I want to insert some narrative here. Um, the Maharishi was born, uh, we think, in 1918. Was that true? Correct. Yeah. He was born in 1918. Yep. And by the uh, in the late 1950s and then into the 60s, he began doing world tours and built quite a following uh, for transcendental uh, meditation. Uh, and then... In the late 1960s, uh, Western popular culture figures, perhaps most notably the Beatles, uh, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr, but also people like the actress Mia Farrow and Mike Love of the Beach Boys, they all traveled to India and spent time with the with the Maharishi. In, in general, how did he influence these uh, pop culture uh, folks and did they influence him or was he too far above them well the reality was it was the time it was the time when people were seeking for higher consciousness and it wasn't just me that was seeking that it wasn't just the hippies that were living in the san francisco bay area it was it was the all the people that were for example war protesters all the people that were uh, embracing this new counterculture lifestyle, which I think was really spurred by Bob Dylan. He was the one that really 
changed our minds and made us feel like we had to do something. We had to change the world. And so people like the Beatles were not immune to this. You know, they also were living a parallel life to mine. They, they were experimenting with LSD heavily. In fact, their uh, record albums, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and Revolver, those are basically influenced by LSD, and they were taking a lot of it. So these cultural icons, these rock stars and famous people, they were also really interested in experiencing higher consciousness. And when the Beatles first met Maharishi, which was on August 24th of 1967, they expressed to him that they wanted to experience higher consciousness, but it didn't work for them to do it through LSD. And Maharishi said to them, well, you know, it's laudable that the youth of today want to experience these, these elevated states of consciousness, but they're definitely misdirected by trying to do it through drugs. Hmm. Now, uh, we're talking with uh, Susan Shumsky. Her book is Maharishi and Me, Seeking Enlightenment with the Beatles Guru. Uh, maybe a little aside on the, the Beatles music, if you will. Uh, Maharishi did influence them in, in, in certain of the songs that they wrote. Or uh, Anyway, I just picked out three that I know. <laughs> Uh, one is, you know, you know, kind of an obvious pick, and that is uh, George Harrison's "My Sweet Lord." What does what does that really mean? Yes, uh, "My Sweet Lord" was heavily influenced not only by Maharishi but also by Bhakti Vedanta Prabhupada, uh, which was the Hare Krishna movement's leader. So, "My Sweet Lord" has quite a bit of Sanskrit wording in it. And included in it is Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama. Uh, that is a chant that was used, that was popularized by ISKCON, which is an international society for Krishna consciousness founded by Prabhupada. And so that was part of that song. But then another part of the song was Guru Brahma, Guru Vishnu, Guru Devo, Maheshvara, Guru Sakshat Param Brahma Tasmai Shri Gurave Namaha. Now that part of the song was influenced by Maharishi because George Harrison went to India, studied with Maharishi, and he was on a teacher training course there. Mm. So all the students there learned this particular chant, which is from an ancient scripture called the Guru Gita. And the translation of it is, the guru is Brahma, Vishnu, and the great Lord Shiva. The guru is the eternal Brahman, the transcendental absolute. I bow to the supreme guru adorned with glory. Hmm. And that particular chant is used by every transcendental meditation teacher when they teach a new student. They do a ceremony, they chant a song, and they make offerings called a puja ceremony, which is an ancient Hindu ceremony. They okay. do this ceremony, and the student has to bring sweet fruit, flowers, and a handkerchief for the ceremony, and they participate in the ceremony, actually. Okay, let me get back to the Maharishi and what he did. 
in, if you will, kind of popularizing uh, these um, the meditation techniques of the Hindus, of which he was one. I gather that there were those, you know, there were other Hindus who thought that he was, you know, kind of over the top with this, that transcendental meditation um, w- was just sort of like the the tip of the iceberg in terms of uh, what uh, Hindus do in their in their religion. And they thought he was making it, making uh, you know, enlightenment, uh, you know, too easy or making it seem too easy uh, to the Western world. Uh, that is true. That is one of the criticisms of Maharishi. He was criticized a lot in India for what he was doing. Some people criticized him for giving away the secrets of the Far East that are hidden in caves and that only special disciples are allowed to get, and those who've been initiated into the ancient mysteries. Some of, some people objected for that reason. Other people from India objected because he was charging uh, money for people to be initiated to learn meditation, and others were were very angry at him because they felt that he was not qualified to teach meditation because he wasn't the right caste. He wasn't a Brahmin. Brahmin caste are the, was the highest Hindu caste. Those were people who were allowed to give spiritual teachings, and, and he was not of that caste. He was of a lesser caste called the scribe caste, which is Kayasta caste. Susan Shumsky is with us. Her book is Maharishi and Me, Seeking Enlightenment with the Beatles Guru. Uh, we'll be back with her in uh, in just a moment. want to put in a word on behalf of the Historians Podcast. We uh, need your support and help to continue as uh, time marches on. We have our GoFundMe campaign in progress uh, for uh, 2018, and we're sort of running out of time here. And we'd like to encourage you to make a donation. Go to GoFundMe.com forward slash historians 2018. They'll walk you through it. And you can use your credit card and donate online. If you'd rather not donate that way, you can just make out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. Susan Shumsky is with us, a pioneer in the self-development field. We're talking with her about Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and his influence on world history, really, in the past number of decades. Back to the popular culture aspect with the Beatles and so on and so forth. Why did the Beatles leave him? And you, you write, I, I think, that they left in a huff. Yes, they did leave in a huff. Oh, actually, all right. So I have to take it beetle by beetle, sort of. So Ringo left after 10 days because he and his wife were uncomfortable there. She hated the insects. He couldn't handle the food. He had brought one entire suitcase of Heinz beans with him and ran out of that and uh, and also, they missed their babies. They had two very small kids at home. So they left after 10 days. Uh, Paul McCartney had come with Jane Asher, who was his girlfriend at the time. And she had a theatrical commitment back in London. So they had to leave after five weeks. 
So the two remaining Beatles were John Lennon and George Harrison, and they stayed for two months uh, at the course in Rishikesh, India. So there were three reasons that they left. One had to do with a film deal that went south. The second had to do with a path that Maharishi had made towards a woman on the course named Rosalind Bonas. And third, uh, the third reason had to do with something that took place decades later in 1991. So if you want, I can go into detail no, about no, one. No, no please don't. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, I'm curious about, the, since you brought it up, about the sexual passes. Uh, he, he was uh, supposed to be celibate, was he? The Maharishi. Yeah. He, he claimed to be a life celibate. That's correct. And he wasn't. He wasn't. Did I mean, he... I say that definitively, not because, not because he made a pass at me, because he did not make a pass at me. However, I was close to these women, or I knew these women, and I've known them for 30 years, who he did make a pass at. So, and I wasn't, and they weren't the only ones. There were several women that Maharishi had sex with, or they were bidden to have sex with him, mm-hmm. one or the other, yes. And the, the transcendental meditation movement through the decades, you know, the I guess we're into the 80s maybe and 90s and the present day, has continued to grow. You were with, with them, quote-unquote, I, I believe for quite a long time, and you say that being on the international staff, and I'm not sure exactly what, what, how that's different from just being with somebody about uh, transcendental meditation, but you said being on the international staff with Maharishi was both heaven and hell. What does that mean? That's correct. Yeah, I spent 22 years living in his various ashrams and six years on his personal staff, which was in Europe, where I was working for him in various capacities. And it was a combination of heaven and hell. It was heaven when he was placing his attention on me because he had he was incredibly charismatic. He had, uh, uh, to the point of being hypnotic, actually. And he was continually pouring love uh, through this, through his eyes and through his, just the way, his demeanor. Tremendous amount of love vibration when you were around him. Tremendous amount of spiritual vibration. You could feel waves of energy exuding from him that were extremely powerful. In other words, he was tremendously charismatic. And everyone wanted to be near him. Everyone was fighting to get near him. So they wanted to always be in his room. They wanted to hang out with him. They wanted to communicate with him. Because every time he placed his attention on you, you felt like you were the most important person in the world. You felt like you were uh, being loved much more than you've been loved by anyone in your life. So it was uh, was heavenly to have that experience. Mm -hmm. And then the hell part was the fact that he's a traditional Indian guru, and traditional Indian gurus, the way that they work with their disciples, is I, I would call it open ego surgery. It's the only way I can kind of describe it, in that he's working on your ego, so he's lifting you up and then squashing you down, lifting you up, squashing you down, and also very intense, incredibly intense to be around him and and it was, the urgency was very intense, and you felt like you had to 
perform and you had to do these things, get these things done. And then when you got them done, they were never good enough. You had to do them over and over and over. And it was just very difficult to work for him. Mm. You know, people who didn't work for him didn't have this experience. Do you think he enjoyed making his followers uncomfortable? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it that way because I don't think he relished in that. I don't think he was sadistic or anything like that. I think he was trying to bring out people's full potential. That was what my take was on it. And in fact, he did help me bring out my full potential. It was really astounding how I improved in so many areas of my life while I, from being there with him. Mm. Now, among the many places where people study or practice transcendental meditation is Maharishi University in Fairfield, Iowa. What is that? And have you kind of served there or worked there? I lived in Fairfield, Iowa on and off for 10 years after I left Europe, after Maharishi sent me back to the United States. I was in Fairfield, Iowa. And Maharishi International University was first founded there, and then it turned into Maharishi University of Management, which is still going strong there right right now. I mean, kids are coming from all over the world and going to school there. So he made it into an accredited university, actually, mm. in, in Fairfield, Iowa. Okay. And at some point, did you have a, a falling out with that organization? And maybe I should could interject now that the Maharishi uh, passed on in 2008. So that's uh, 10 years ago now. Yes, that's correct. And uh, by the way, when you were talking about the heaven and hell, just, just to say one other sentence about that. And that is that it was sort of like military drill instructor in a way. Because, you know, they're trying to train someone. They're trying to bring out someone's potential. And Maharishi did that, not in the physical way like they do in the military, but in a mental way. He was trying to train us to become stronger, to develop more of our full potential. Hmm. And, um, yes, so... uh, I'm sorry, what was... Well, I, well, I guess what I'm interested in asking you now is, you're not there anymore. I mean, did you have a falling out with this? Falling out, correct. Yeah. So what happened was, uh, it became very oppressive in the 1980s in Fairfield, Iowa. It became quite cult-like in the sense that our lives were being controlled too much, every aspect of our lives. When Maharishi first started TM, started to teach TM back in 1959. He first arrived on the shores of America, started teaching way back then. He said that it was a very simple technique that all you had to do was 20 minutes twice a day. You meditate. The rest of your life is you do whatever you want, complete freedom. Nothing is controlled. All you do is add meditation and your life will improve, which actually did happen, by the way. But then in the 1980s, It was like it became every minute of your life was being controlled and you had to do all these different practices and uh, it just became overwhelming and uh, too controlling. Uh, The straw that broke the camel's back for me was when I went into the MIU library and found out that many of the books had been purged from the library, that there was like this censorship program going on where they eliminated all New Age books, all books written by spiritual masters, such as Yogananda, Vivekananda, and other spiritual teachers. They 
eliminated all their books from the library and only books that were supposedly positive and supposedly approved by the TM organization were allowed in the library. So that was kind of, okay, this is not good. Mm. And besides that, I already was learning and teaching another form of meditation that I had learned. And Mm. so I was blacklisted because there was this strict, you're either on the program or off the program. I was off the program, so I got blacklisted. And so it wasn't really viable for me to continue Mm. to live there because people... They were afraid to even give me eye contact. Now, this story just sort of reminds me of some of the uh, stories I've seen in the media about disaffected members of the Church of Scientology. I mean, should I see a comparison there or or no? Well, Scientology is a whole whole other animal. Uh, Scientology was uh, physically abusive and people were held in prison and that kind of thing. No, this was not like that, but it was cult-like, yes, in that the members were definitely uh, being brainwashed, and we were told that we must follow the TM program or we would be responsible for the end of the world, basically. Uh, we We were supposedly meditating together in these large groups in order to save the world. And probably there was a lot of positive energy that came from that. Mm. But there was a lot of guilt trip, too. Okay. We're getting near the end of the program, but do you think Maharishi and Transcendental Meditation have changed the world in a good way? I mean, what does it mean mean, uh, that, that all this that happened that you've been talking about? Well, Maharishi, from 1960 onwards, he said that if a certain percentage of the population would meditate, that there would be world peace. So his purpose and everything he did was to that end, to create world peace. So that's the reason why he had people, he taught TM, that's the reason why people meditated in large groups together. He even did scientific studies where he would send hundreds of people to a crime-ridden area or to a war-torn area. And, he, and they found that actually the crime rate went down or the war subsided during those periods of time. So he did scientific research on how meditation will affect society. And it actually did. And I do believe that, you know, when he started out, you know, the Vietnam War and there were millions of people being killed overseas. And now... There isn't any major war going on. But the world has changed, and people are much more, much more centered. People are much more interested in meditation and in peaceful activities like meditation huh. and yoga. Well, I might dispute that. I mean, we've got Syria, and we've uh, got the uh, problems that we've had, uh, the war that we had in Iraq, and Yemen is is got a war. I mean, it seems like it's wars a very do small, small compared to the bloodbath of the 20th century where we had 71 million people killed in one of the world wars and 41 million people killed in another of the world wars. I mean, it was, it was a bloodbath in the 20th century that there's nothing in comparison to that at, at this time. Do you still meditate regularly every day? I do not practice transcendental meditation. I stopped doing that in 1989 when I left Fairfield because I was already doing another practice of meditation that I liked better. So 
so yes, I do practice meditation, but it's not TM. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the book is called Maharishi and Me, Seeking Enlightenment with the Beatles Guru. The author is uh, Susan Shumsky, who uh, is a pioneer in the self-development uh, uh, field. We just have a few seconds here, but uh, the book has a lot of lot of pictures in it. Uh, people are interested in that, and I've seen uh, at least one really you know good review of it, saying that the book is uh, you know does have some valuable in- information in it. I noticed there are even pictures of you in it, Susan. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of pictures. Uh, there's a beautiful color insert in the middle of the book and pictures throughout the book. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. <laughs>